and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. We need to learn to take God at His Word. Sounds easy enough, huh? Especially when it's smooth sailing. But in the midst of a storm, even the disciples of Jesus needed a reminder. On one occasion, He told them, Let us go over to the other side. They did. En route to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, however, their boat encountered a furious squall. The sky opened and buckets of water fell, and waves threatened to overturn the boat. The disciples turned to Jesus and found Him sound asleep. They screamed, Don't you care if we drown? Jesus woke up, stood up, commanded the storm to shut up, and then said to the disciples, Do you still have no faith? What a stunning rebuke. The sea was raging. The water was churning. Why did Jesus scold them? Simple. They didn't take him at his word. He said they were going to the other side. He didn't say, We're going to the middle of the lake to drown. Jesus had declared the outcome. But when the storm came, the disciples heard the roar of the winds and forgot his word. Storms are coming your way. Winds will howl, your boat will be tossed, and you will have a choice. You will either hear Christ or the crisis, heed the promise of Scripture or the noise of the storm. Will you take God at his word? We're here in the Archbishop's Corner, where Archbishop Leonard Blair of Hartford will help us be strong in faith and encourage us to take God at his word. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into your space, into the Archbishop's Corner. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Well, today, Are you waiting for me one week to say that I'm not doing well? Well, no, I want your honest opinion. Uh, you know, We're obviously concerned about the health of our archbishop, and if you're oh. not feeling too well, tell me that you've got a headache or, you know, I've had oh, a restless no, no, night. I'm, you know, no, I'm good. You have no trouble sleeping? Really? A clear conscience? Well, I hope I have a clear conscience, <laughs> but uh, at the age of 70, I, I sometimes wake up during the night briefly, but I fall right back to sleep. And I'm always amazed at people who are working on internet messages and stuff and such at three in the morning. I I, I would find that terrible. I, I probably get, because they can't sleep. That's what I mean. Yeah. That people today they I I'm the number of them uh who apparently don't sleep very well. You know, if you listen to all these mattress and pillow commercials, you'd think that the whole country's having trouble going to sleep. <laughs> but uh I do think that uh you know it, it is important to get your rest. Well today ended daylight savings time. Did you remember to turn your clock back last night? Yes. Well, it's also zero tasking day. So instead of filling those extra 60 minutes that we got by setting the clock back, instead of filling it with more work and stress, we're encouraged to do nothing more than take a breath, relax, re-energize, refresh. So you've got an extra hour today. How do you plan to spend that hour, Archbishop? I'm sure it'll take care of itself. (laughs) You won't have to worry about it. Tomorrow is the start of Young Readers Week to remind children of the joys and the importance of reading for kids. The week reinforces the idea that reading is important at any age and that everybody needs to be good readers in any job field. From time to time, Archbishop, I ask you for a reading recommendation. Is there anything that you're currently reading or recently read that you would recommend to us? I like uh, uh, history. I, I tend to read a lot of history books. One book that I finished recently of history that I found very helpful was, or very interesting, was um, 
a history of the first Vatican Council mm. uh, in the uh, late 1860s. Uh, written, the history is written by uh, John O'Malley, a church historian, um, Jesuit. And uh, I must say it was very interesting because, you know, if you look at the history of the church, we sometimes think perhaps that the church is so unchanging that everything's always been just the way it has, the way it is, but that's not the case. And to see the foment, the, the great po political and uh, struggles that were taking place in the 19th century and how the First Vatican Council responded to that and, and the things that came from it that we still have with us today um, is very interesting because it's important to have a, a, a historical appreciation of the church over these 2,000 years. Is there anything that surprised you about the history of the First Vatican Council? Anything perhaps that you, you, you didn't know? Well, I think part of it is uh, to appreciate just how troubled uh, the Church was on the eve of the First Vatican Council, uh, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, you know, and even with regard to um, the unity of, of the faith and, and, and uh, bishops in different countries doing different things, and uh, how, uh, you know, I guess it's always, and of course we, we have that question with us today, that the unity and diversity, how far can the diversity go and still maintain the unity of the church? And of course, at that time, the decision was made, endorsed, uh, to really vest a terrific amount of, uh, of uh, a sense of unity in the papacy. And of course, the Pope is the foundation, Christ is the foundation of unity, but as the vicar of Christ, the Pope is very central to this. Uh, but uh, that was underlined in a very particular way at the First Vatican Council. Well, anyway, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting thing. That so makes you realize too that the church in every age faces all kinds of huge challenges. You know, I don't think perhaps people don't realize that in the uprisings in France uh, in the 1870 that the Archbishop of Paris was murdered. Uh, you know, all kinds of uh, turmoil and and things going on. So, um, anyway, it's inter I find history very interesting. Wednesday, the sixth of November, is Stress Awareness Day. It's an opportunity to start looking after yourself and your life, break down the individual stressors that are negatively affecting you. Failure to deal with stress can lead to serious health problems. Archbishop, can you talk a little bit about how prayer can be a stress reliever? Well, I, I would start with the most basic thing, that uh, human beings are spiritual uh, as well as bodily creatures. So ultimately, if you're not tending to your spiritual life, uh, to your inner life, uh, it's going to take a toll on your physical life as well. And so it's no surprise that many times studies show that people that pray or that go to church or that, you know, that they, they, they enjoy a, a, a greater health than those who don't. Uh, so I think not only is prayer and a spiritual life important for the good of our souls, but it's for the good of our bodies as well. Well, let's now take a look at the road to happiness in life. And this is where we look at the wisdom of Pope Francis that is drawn from some of his writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and we'll ask Archbishop Blair to comment with his own thoughts on what Pope Francis has said. Now, this is taken from Pope Francis's homily delivered on October 1st of 2016, and it's called, Let the Church Be the Source of Your Consolation. Pope Francis says, God does not comfort us only in our hearts. Through the prophet Isaiah, he adds, In Jerusalem you shall find your comfort. In Jerusalem, that is, in the city of God, in the community. When we are united in communion, God's consolation works in us. In the church, we find consolation. 
It is the house of consolation. Here God wishes to console us. We may ask ourselves, as a member of the church, do I bring the consolation of God to others? Do I know how to welcome others as guests and console those whom I see as tired and disillusioned? Even when suffering from affliction and rejection, a Christian is called upon to bring hope to the hearts of those who have given up, to encourage the downhearted, to bring the light of Jesus, the warmth of his presence, and his restorative forgiveness. Many people suffer. Many people endure hardship and injustice. Many people live in anxiety. Our hearts need anointing with God's consolation, which does not take away our problems, but gives us the power to love and to peacefully bear pain. Wow. Archbishop, your thoughts. Well, yes, you know, consolation, and uh, I guess the Pope likes the word accompaniment, mm. that uh, one of our, uh, the expressions, uh, a principal expression of, of charity uh, is to uh, accompany people in, in their needs and in their uh, sufferings and in their trials and tribulations uh, to accompany one another, but particularly those in any kind of trouble. Uh, so that's a very profound, and of course, as he talks about the house of consolation, you know, I think of our, our Lady of Consolation, the Blessed Mother also, as the church's first and, and most perfect member, being for us uh, also uh, a consolation today. You know, when I was Bishop of uh, Toledo, the, the National Shrine of Our Lady of Consolation is in Cary, Ohio. And mm -hmm. I remember the beautiful statue of Our Lady under in Latin, it says, Consolatrix Afflictorum, the consoler of the afflicted, uh, inscribed at the base of that statue. And, you know, that's a very motherly thing, too, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. That Mary, the mother of the church and our mother. So she is also a, a very great example to us of what Pope Francis is saying. You know, what one thinks of Mary at the foot of the cross, uh, being afflicted herself, and, and yet uh, uh, receiving John as her son, and he receiving her as his mother, um, the, the, well, anyway, the, the whole notion of consolation uh, to, to, uh, is, is very, very important, uh, and it's part of the charity that, of Christ and the, uh, and the fruit of faith, uh, because you can't console people if this world is just all there is, and, uh, you know, death and suffering are meaningless and just come to an end. But you can, consolation can be given because they're not the end, and because redemptive suffering is possible because of the cross. Uh, and that becomes our consolation and our strength. I liked what the Pope said. He said, even when suffering from affliction and rejection, a Christian is called upon to bring hope to the hearts of those who have given up. So e even when we're the ones that are, are, are suffering from some type of rejection or affliction, some pain, we can still bring hope and consolation to others. Well, absolutely, yes. That's part of the, part of the charity of Christ that we are to live and express in our own lives. Let's take a look now at our gospel passage that we have for today on this 31st Sunday in Ordinary Time, the third day of November. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, the 19th chapter. After the gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, and ask for your thoughts. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and rich. He sought to see who Jesus was, but could not on account of the crowd because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. When the crowd saw it, they all murmured. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Archbishop, what should we take away as a life lesson from this particular gospel? Well, again, it repeats the theme we heard uh, for the Sunday Gospel last week, and that is that Jesus has come to call sinners. Um, here's somebody who is a sinner, but he knows that uh, in his heart of hearts, Jesus appeals to him. There's something about Jesus that he he needs to see and he needs to experience. And, you know, I think this is true. If a person is honest with himself or herself living in sin, I you know, now it's possible for a person to reject God. It's possible for a person to reject forgiveness and redemption. But, you know, we have to believe that every person in their heart of hearts really, uh, especially if they are, 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 have God distant from them or have done evil things, that somehow they can recognize that this is not the right path uh, and that they need uh, redemption. And Christ is the Redeemer. So Zacchaeus... Uh, has this wonderful experience by encountering Christ of, you know, recognizing his need to change and the possibility that through this Jesus it's possible to be redeemed. And so he does. He makes this pledge uh, to do what's right. And, uh, and uh, Jesus says that he, Jesus, has come to seek and, and save what was lost. And that's what happens. And it continues to happen today. I'm wondering what it was that propelled Zacchaeus to want to see Jesus so badly that he climbed the tree to see him. Now, if, if we could only bottle some of that stuff so that people know that they can see Jesus, meet heart-to-heart -heart with Jesus at every Mass today. The, the Eucharist makes him personally present to us, not only to see him, but to be fed and to be nourished by his very body and blood. And to hear him in the Gospel. The, the thing is that we have to remember, too, that all of this is under grace. It's a doctrine of the faith that that even our, the first, our, our desire to do this is not entirely our own. It, it is prompted by grace, that God's grace is there, and that God's grace extends to people to do this, but not everybody accepts it. You know, if, as Jesus says, if you have a hardened heart or you, ha or you choose to be blind, remain blind, then, well, so be it. But, uh, but God's grace is always there prompting us and inviting us to do something different. People are so critical sometimes, quick to jump to conclusions. He has gone to stay at the house of a sinner, they say. Now, 21st century people haven't changed that much from 1st century people. We've always been judgmental, quick to condemn others. Oh, how could he go to the house of a sinner? Archbishop, your thoughts on that? Well, I think that lesson uh, or that uh, warning applies particularly to, to those of us who do practice the faith, who do who try, you know, to live a virtuous life. Uh, that's not to say, of course, the problem in our society today is uh, we're afraid to call a sin a sin. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I, research, research has shown that people today reject the idea 
of hating the sin but loving the sinner. That that doesn't uh, that doesn't uh, convince people today. They they don't find that appealing. And the great challenge for us is to find out how we can translate that uh, or live it in a way that people can can respond to, um, because sin is sin, and and uh, we do have to we do have to confront it, uh, but we have to do it with. Uh, mercy and love and an invitation to repentance as Jesus uh, did. But it's very hard today. So there's two extremes. You know, one yeah. is being kind of self-righteous and condemning sinners. Uh, and But the other extreme is becoming kind of indifferent to sin and saying, who's to, who's to say what's right and wrong? You know, that kind of thing. So the truth is, is really neither of those uh, extremes. Jesus says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. That was his mission, to seek and to save what was lost. Shouldn't that be the mission of the church today as well? And the mission of Christ's priests, seeking out to save the lost, the broken, the alienated. Well, obviously, yes, that is, uh, that's that's uh, at the heart of it. That's a beautiful but mission. But you notice Jesus says, to save what was lost. Uh-huh. In other words, Zacchaeus, if you hadn't converted, if you hadn't had a change of heart and repented of what you've done, if you hadn't opened your heart to me, you would be lost. <laughs> you know, so the choice is very uh, stark here. It's, it's a matter of uh, eternal life and death. Well, we've got several questions that have been submitted by our listeners, so let's take a look at some of those questions. Russell from Burlington says, I've been a Catholic my entire life and never once questioned Jesus' resurrection, but I know that skeptics have other theories on the disappearance of his body from the tomb. Why is his resurrection the only satisfactory explanation for the disappearance of his body? Well, Russell, if Christ, as St. Paul says, if Christ is not risen from the dead, our faith is in vain. Uh, because um, uh, the, the whole uh, redemption and recreation uh, of, the, of, of the human uh, destiny and uh, of, the, of the world really hinges on, on, on this, that, that death is truly overcome. And uh, so St. Paul says, if he's not risen from the dead, uh, then we're all just going to die. And in other words, you have to be very careful. I think what's underlying what I'm saying is that in the ancient church, there were heresies that claimed, and, and there, the, we see this today in these movements, they're, they're called Gnostic, where yeah. they, they, they talk about some kind of spiritual realm that's de- detached from the reality of the, of the, the physical world, of, of, of the created body, etc., uh, but that, uh, that is not uh, a Christianity. Uh, Christianity is based on the fact that, that death, the reality of death, uh, is overcome by life. And that even in this physical body, Christ is truly risen from the dead. That this creation, not just our bodies, but creation itself, the material world, is, is uh, part and parcel of, uh, of redemption. And uh, I think that makes all the difference in the world. Because otherwise, we can spiritualize it into some kind of strange, uh, detached thing that, 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 uh, that's removed from the reality of creation. Alan from Torrington says, In the Republican American newspaper, there is a column called Dear Annie, and a recent submission particularly stood out to me. This is what the gentleman asked Annie to respond to. And Archbishop, I would like to know what advice you would give to this gentleman. This is what this gentleman writes. He says, I guess my question is more just about the state of my life. I went to great schools, played college sports, got married to a wonderful woman, and we have four terrific children. We live in a nice house, yet despite all those outward appearances of success, I don't feel satisfied. It is as if I work and work, get the house, 
and then want a bigger or new house. No matter what happens, it's never enough. I finally get that promotion and make a lot more money, and within a year, I am complaining that my income is too low. I treat myself and buy a new sports car. It feels good for the moment, and then I am on to the next yearning. It is this feeling of never enough. Recently, I started seeing a therapist, and I told her that I feel like a hamster running and running on a wheel. I am trying to get to a state of peace, and yet all I do is run around and around, never getting anywhere. So, Alan wants your comment on this person's situation, Archbishop. My comment is simply to quote to St. Augustine, Lord, our hearts are ever restless and will remain so until they rest in Thee, that only God can answer the uh, longings of the human heart. So, that's, that's, that's my simple and complete answer, uh, that only, only God can fulfill the, the longings of the human heart both even in this world and certainly in the world to come. Well, I think that that's exactly why Alan asked the question, because it's different from the response that Annie gave. Annie responded by telling this gentleman to continue attending his therapy sessions to dissect what is causing him pain. Al from Washington Depot said, Over the past few months, I've been making many decisions that will definitely have a big impact on my future. I'm trying to make the right ones and have been praying but I wonder if I'm doing what God wants. How can I know if I am hearing God, hearing Satan, or hearing my own thoughts? Well, I think the criteria is uh, whatever we do, is it in accord with uh, uh, the Christian faith? Is what we're hearing in accord with what uh, the Church believes and teaches as articulated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church? Uh, is it in accord with uh, uh, even prior to that, in accord with the gospel, with what Christ taught us, uh, is it in accord, uh, you know, with 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 all that? And if it is, then um, then we can say that we can discern, to use that word, we can discern uh, the will of God for us. It also has to be done prayerfully, and maybe it requires some counsel with a wise person, a spirit, somebody can give spiritual advice. But we, yeah, we do have to be careful in discerning. Uh, uh, what we think we, we are hearing, uh, or or the the uh, as we try to to discern an answer to the questions we ask or the prayers we make, uh, but I would say the most fundamental thing is whether it's in accord with the gospel, accord with the with what the church teaches uh, believes and teaches about the gospel. Janice from Morris says. I never thought twice about dressing my children up in fun costumes on Halloween to go trick-or-treating, but a friend of mine brought it to my attention that, as a Christian, I should not allow this. Have I been wrong all these years in allowing my kids to celebrate it, even if they solely think of it as a day to dress up as a superhero or eat candy? Well, Janice, I grew up in a very Catholic neighborhood in a very Catholic world, and I can tell you I had my share of that candy in the bag dressed up as whatever I was that year. And it's all very innocent. I mean, the origin of, of Halloween is very Christian. Um, today, we live in a society that is becoming very secular and where even people are engaging in these things in ways that, you know, sometimes have to do with uh, uh, spirits and things that are not really uh, very Christian at all. But I'd like to think that's still a, a marginal, peripheral thing. Uh, I don't, I never occurred to me that there's anything wrong with going out trick-or-treating in a costume as long as uh, your kids uh, understand this in the context of your Catholic faith and All Saints Day, All Souls Day, 
and uh, they don't engage in anything or, or encourage anything that would be uh, that would be contrary to the faith. That's the best answer I can give. Maybe things have gotten further out of hand than I realize about these kinds of things. Um, I, I do think that making such a huge deal of Halloween can, I wonder sometimes if that's so healthy. It, it's one day and it's mainly for kids and it's to, to go get yourself some candy. Meg from Waterbury says, Last week at my aunt's funeral, my cousin gave a beautiful eulogy where I learned a lot of new things about my aunt. One thing that particularly stood out to me was that she never swore a day in her life. It shocked me because most everyone I know swears, and I am guilty of doing it myself. I also work in a school where I hear students swear all the time. How big of a sin is it to curse? In today's modern world, it seems that it's much more normal to swear than not to. Well, Meg, it depends what you mean by swearing. Certainly, uh, it's taking the name of, of, of God in vain that is very problematic and even sinful. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to understand how, well, maybe I do understand it, sadly, that in a world where religion um, is less and less practiced and where people become so very secular, why is it necessary to use the name, you know, Jesus or Christ mm -hmm. as a kind of, of swear word? That to me is, uh, you know, I think the source of that, uh, we know where that comes from, and it's not heaven, um, to use the name of Jesus in vain. You know, we even have a, a feast day of the holy name of Jesus uh, and reverence, uh, I mean, the commandments, you know, about the, the, the name of God. So uh, I, I, th I think we have to be very, very uh, wary not to, uh, to, to use the name of God in vain in the name of Christ or Our Lady of the Saints. Uh, and that can't be downright sinful. Uh, the, but as far as foul language and vulgar language, you know, and uh, crude language, that's just become, you know, it's almost a joke on TV. They put these little bleeps in, yeah. and everybody knows what the bleep is. So, ha-ha, you know, we're, we're playing a little childish game. We encourage and allow that kind of stuff, but then we pretend uh, we cover it up with, with these uh, little beeps. Um, it's really a coarsening uh, of society. It's crude and uh, disrespectful of people. Uh, but again, when it comes, I think one of the things we really need to do is to be sure that we don't take the name of God in vain. And a quick last question, Archbishop Michelle from Plainville says, at every Mass during the Gloria, we say we glorify you. What does this mean? We are taught to glorify the Lord in everything we do, but how do we accomplish this? Well, I think, Michelle, we glorify God when we praise him uh, in prayer uh, as our creator and redeemer and our all, you know, that God is all for us. Uh, we, that, that's giving glory to God. We glorify God in, uh, our, our explicitly in our worship. But I think the main thing is our life has to give glory to God. He's our creator, our redeemer. Pope Benedict once said something about this very wise. He said, human beings are tempted to think that somehow glorifying God diminishes them. And the reality is that when we glorify God, we are glorified in him as his creatures. And, and I think that's very profound and very important. God is not a rival to, to us. God is uh, the source and end of our own glory because we only find true glory in him. So when we say we glorify you in the, in the, in the prayer at mass, obviously we're talking about the prayer that we're offering but we also are talking about uh, celebration of the Holy Eucharist, which is really an act of Christ in which we participate, the Son glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son. Uh, and when we leave Mass, 
by living according to what we believe and, and the Mass, then we also give glory to God. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close the program with a prayer and a blessing? Or during this uh, month, uh, once again, uh, we're reminded uh, that it is a month of special prayer for uh, those, uh, the faithful departed. And so, uh, again, we pray eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. And may their souls and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you so much for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We look forward to joining you again next week when we will, uh, once again, have many questions from our listeners. So we'll see you next week, same time, 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, with a repeat at 11.30 in the afternoon. Until then, enjoy this week. Thank you very much. Have a good week, too. Thank you.